Well, during this time, during the counting of the old mayor, a few months ago, we talked about wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And Henry Goulet did a masterful job of, of creating a lots of uh, uh, devotionals for us to have a heart that's devoted to the Lord. And so we're going to continue that theme today, and uh, it's going to be in Jeremiah 17. So if you turn to Jeremiah 17, and as you do, then I'll open up in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, Jeremiah 17, concerning blessed is the man who trusts in you and cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Father, as we look at this message today and hear the words, I pray, Father, we may continue to seek after you with a whole heart, that we would have wholeheartedness and not a devoted and not a distracted devotion to you. We thank you, Father, that you are the source of everything we need. In Yeshua's name, amen. Now, during this message, you had a handout passed out to you, and we're going to look at that uh, in a few minutes. But first, I want to look at, uh, we should not think of our devotion toward the Lord as, as simply uh, having arrived at one time. We should think of our devotion toward Adonai as a journey of the heart with ebbs and flows rather than having arrived. It's easy for us to think that. Toward this end, our darash this morning is a continuation of wholehearted devotion. So if you're taking notes, the, the Darash title is Wholehearted or Distracted Devotion to the Lord. And we'll be looking at Jeremiah 17, 1 to 13. You know, our contemporary society today are so distracted, with so many different things to distract us from. And we need to make sure we have a wholehearted devotion and focus on the Lord rather than just simply uh, what's going on in the Olam Hazed, this present world. We look at the, the whole Olam Haba, the world to come. So toward that end, I'd like us to look at Jeremiah 17. Yirmiyahu is the pronunciation of Jeremiah in Hebrew. Yirmiyahu or Jeremiah 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and in the horns of their altars. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars by their asherim, by green trees on high hills. Verse 3. O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give you over your wealth and all your treasures for, to, for booty, your high places for sin throughout all your borders, and you will even yourself will let go of your inheritance that I gave you. And I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Verse 11. As a partridge that hatches eggs is not yet laid, so is he who makes a fortune. But unjustly, in the midst of his days, it will forsake him. In the end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. 
O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. All those who turn away from the earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Now, when we read Jeremiah, really anything from the prophets, we need to understand a historical background to this because it would be easy for us to run and just take application directly from curses a man and trust the Lord and blesses a man who trusts the Lord. But we need to look at the historical context. So we need to develop a historical background to provide a framework or a platform from which to understand Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17. Now you notice in this text I read, there's no mention of king. There's no mention of any time uh, element. There's nothing. That, in fact, Jeremiah, as many of the prophets, are not written chronologically, oftentimes topically. So in this case, same with Jeremiah 17, we don't have a specific mention of a king or a personal name or chronological time frame. So we need to have the historical uh, facts established from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And I'm not going to have you turn to all these. I have this uh, reference guide to all these scripture verses that I'm going to be mentioning through 2, Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Chronicles and also 2 Kings. Now, with that in mind, take out your handout that you received as you came in. Take out your handout. What we're going to do is we're going to look at historical background. Now, to give you some, uh, uh, an overall thumb sketch of what's going on here, you had the United Monarchy under King Saul, then King David, King Solomon. And then under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdom was split and it was called the divided monarchy. The north, northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, during this time frame, you have to understand when it says Israel is talking about the northern kingdom, when it's talking about Judah, it's talking only the southern kingdom. So now we get to this handout you have here. The title is Decline of the Divided Monarchy and their Writing Prophets from 722 to 580. Now this is just a thumbnail sketch for us to see and establish where did Jeremiah 17 take place. If we have no name, no king, nothing, we have to kind of figure out where this fits in. So if you look in the, uh, right in the top, you'll have in a gray square, divided monarchy, northern kingdom. In the bottom, you see the divided monarchy, the southern kingdom under Judah. So if you look at the far right, you see the prophet Jeremiah in the blue box there. This is the prophet. He ministered there with Josiah. The yellow line, the box with the yellow ink, this is the timeline from 755 to 580 BCE. Now, the northern kingdom had these four kings. You see Jeroboam II, Menahem, Pekah, and Hosea. After 722, the northern kingdom, the Lord had finally had enough of their sin idolatry and, and, and sent them or exiled them to Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, in 721-722 by Assyrian king Shalmaneser. So from that time on, from 721, you no longer have a northern kingdom. You only have the southern kingdom. So now if you look at the, at the, uh, the boxes down below, you'll see Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Elakim, Jehoiakim, and Matananiah. Now, these are the kings that's left of Judah. There's other kings that's not on this sheet. But if you look on there, you notice that in red, you have kings. We've got three of them, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. The names in red here are righteous kings. The names in black, Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, and the others, those are the unrighteous kings. Now, in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, you'll read this. And they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. 
So in red, red ink there, the kings down below in the southern kingdom are all expressing uh, kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord and black, those who did evil. Now, uh, if we look at, we're not going to turn to these books, but if we look at First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we find three historical kings of Judah who did what was evil in God's sight, whose son became, did what was right in the Lord's sight. This is not on your sheet here, but King Abijam was succeeded by righteous King Asa. Evil King Ahaz was succeeded by his righteous son, Hezekiah. Evil King Ammon was succeeded by a righteous King Josiah. So we see there are cases in which an evil father produced a son which was good in the sight of the Lord. Now there's also some kings who were righteous that unfortunately sired a son who was unrighteous and the kingdom went from doing what was right to the Lord versus doing what was evil. So King Jehoshaphat, he was succeeded by an evil son named King Jehoram. Righteous King Jotham, which is on your sheet here, the very first king down at the bottom. Jotham was succeeded by an evil King Ahaz. And again, continued on this sheet here. From Ahaz, uh, from Hezekiah, he had a son, an evil son named Manasseh. Now, righteous King jo uh, Josiah, Yoshia, okay, he was succeeded by an evil King Jehoahaz. Now, there's one stretch which there was four consecutive kings which did good and, or did righteous in the eyes of God. And those four kings, which is, again, not in a sheet except the first one, Jotham, we've seen King Joash to his son, King Amaziah, to his son, Azariah, to his son, Jotham. Four consecutive kings. That's the only part where he had four consecutive kings that did right in the sight of the Lord. And if you look at this sheet again, you'll see that in the red ink color, you only have three kings out of ten. That's only 33% of the kings did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And uh, that's, not, that's not good at all here. So what about these three righteous kings? I'm not going to give you a whole outline here, but I will say a few things. The first one, Jotham, he was enthroned at age 25. The length of his reign was 16 years. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. King Hezekiah on your sheet there, he was enthroned at age 25. The length of reign was 29 years. And there's something that 2 Kings 18, you don't have to turn to that, I will hear, that is really critical to our understanding here. It said of King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, 5 to 6, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah. Verse 6, for he clung to the Lord, Dabak, to cling. He clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moshe. So we see he was a righteous king. And then we get to King Josiah. And I tell you what, King Josiah, a new appreciation of King Josiah. This is the first king, if your hand up, you see here, Jeremiah in blue there. This is the first king Jeremiah ministered before. And uh, Jeremiah, uh, it'd be a sh you know, actually, you think about this. Poor Jeremiah, he goes to minister, and the first king is his only king he's going to minister to that's righteous. The rest of them are abominable. In fact, two of the kings only lasted three months. It was awful. It was a train wreck. And so uh, Jeremiah had a rough time with that. Now, do you remember when, uh, when Paul dismissed all the kids? Did you see some of them were about eight years of age, nine years of age? Do you remember the, right, our kids we had, eight or nine years of age? Are you ready for this? Josiah, you know how old he was when he started his reign? Eight years old. Josiah began ruling at eight years of age. And I, I see our kids here, and I think, wow, one of these guys. Eight years of age. 
all right? And he lasted 16 years. Now, Josiah had a great reputation. And in fact, uh, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we read this. Chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old and became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, and he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the left or to the right. So we say he was wholehearted, just like Hezekiah had a whole heart. He practiced wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So did Josiah. Unfortunately, the other kings had their heart turned away and they're distracted. They had a distracted devotion. In some cases, altogether, no, no love for God at all. Now, uh, Josiah uh, was the king in which, imagine, you're an eight-year-old boy. You're ruling. You decide to do some reforms. And he, when this happened, he was 21. He sent and had the temple repaired. As the priests were looking in the temple, the, the, the priest, high priest of Kohen Haggadol came and said, I found the Torah in the temple. What? Shouldn't you have that already out reading? Well, that was a problem, right? There was no reading of the Torah because it wasn't found. They found the lost scroll, the, the temple, the Torah, and took it out. And so Josiah had them read. When, when they read what was in the Torah, he tore his clothes and he was distressed and saying, oh, no, we're in trouble. We have disobeyed. We have practiced idolatry, everything. So we have a real issue. But no, so what did he do? He started reading from the scroll. Had all the, he forced the citizens to listen to the Torah, listen to the, the curses being read. He set days aside for spiritual house cleaning. He defiled the idols. He killed the false prophets. And he commanded the people of Judah to celebrate Pesach. They hadn't celebrated Passover in a while. That's amazing. Now, Josiah's reign was read in glowing terms. It says here that in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In the twelfth year of his reign, age 21, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem, the high places, the Asherim, the card images, and the molten images. So we say he has a wholeheartedness toward the Lord. Now, his son, unfortunately, was Eliakim, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So now we're setting this up. So what I'm saying here is, I think, if I'm looking this right, because we have no name, no king, no time frame, I believe that the time frame of Jeremiah 17, which we're about ready to read, is in between Josiah the righteous king and his son Jehoahaz, or, or CA 640 to 608 BCE. So if you look at your sheet, this will be the last time you look at this, really. We see if you look down at Jeremiah, the prophet, in the blue box there, and, and drop down to Jos Josiah, but either between Josiah or Jehoahaz, his son. So we have this time period. By the way, there is a typo on this, on this uh, handout. If you look at Isaiah, it says 50 years between Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah. It should be 70 if you want to make that correction. So it's 70 years between Isaiah, the last, the major prophet, and Jeremiah. So with that in mind, let's look at Jeremiah 17. So now we have the time frame. We don't want to just rush to the text and see about how blessed is a man, the cursed man, trusts in the Lord, and come up with application for modern. We need to make sure we establish a historical backdrop and what did it mean to Jeremiah's day. So that's what, we're, that's what we've done here. So now we're going to turn to Jeremiah 17. All right, verse 1 again. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Now, the sin of Judah, Chatat Yehuda, 
the sin. Now, this, this word, the semantic range of meaning, means an offense, sometimes habitual sinfulness. It also includes sin offering and punishment. Now, what's important here, he says here the sin is a national offense. You notice it didn't say the sin of the prophet, the sin of the priest, the sin of the Levite. Uh, it says the sin of Judah. This is a national offense. This is a national emergency. All right? And it says here the sin of Judas is described as being written down with a diamond-tipped iron stylus. It says with a diamond point that is engraved upon the tablets of their heart. Now the word there for the, the iron, actually for the, the written down, the tipped, a diamond-tipped iron stylus is eight barzel. Eight, not eights, but eight, refers to a swooping mark or a long stroke of a marking stick made with iron. So like taking an iron stylus and going, that's what's being carved. That's the mark on their hearts. The tip of the stylus is fascinating. You might have diamond tipped. Maybe some of your versions have something else. It's the word sepurin, which is an encasement or covering or overlaying of metal. What kind of metal? It says here diamond tipped. There's others that say flint. Maybe your versions has a flint tip. The word there for tip is shamir. It's translated as a point of diamond, but actually when I looked it up, I had a hard time finding this word because it's only used just in Jeremiah. I found it in Brown Driver and Briggs Genesis, Hebrew, English, Lexicon. It's, it's, this is the definition. Hard as flint, sharp as a thorn bush, or adamantly firm, adamant or firm. So the diamond tip is saying it's a hard, firm, sharp cutting. If you're going to be cutting on, on stone, you need something sharp. So the point is that this writing stylus is so firm, so hard, so rigid, it's able to penetrate stones of heart or stony heart. Their sin is this bad. We're not even, we're not even in the ballpark. We're not even talking about wholehearted yet. We're talking about just the opposite. It's written upon Judah's hearts, or al-luach labam. Now, it says it's written down. I, I like this. You know what the word is for written down here is? Ketubah. You all know what a ketubah is. It's a marriage contract. When my wife and I got married, we, I read to her a ketubah, from a ketubah. Ketubah. And I believe it's a word play here. Not only is it written, it means written down, it also may be a word play because of this. Whenever Judah and Israel, when she was around, whenever they followed the Lord, she was a faithful wife, a faithful bride of yod heh But every time she slipped in idolatry, it was spiritual adultery. God called her a harlot. God called her a fornicator. God called her all kinds of things. If you look at Ezekiel 23, you'll get red in the face how embarrassing it is because of idolatry. He compares it to a harlot. And so Israel and Judah were, uh, were practicing idolatry. So Ketubah may be that they've wrote, written their sins on their own marriage contract. It may be the, the word player that it's trying to use here. Also look in verse 17, it says, and on the horns of, uh, on the horns of their altars. You notice it didn't say on the horn of their altar. It's not the, the brazen altar. It's horns of their altars, plural, which is idolatry. These are pagan altars, and they had them everywhere, including in the house of the Lord at one time with Manasseh. So we see that this is altars to strange deities. Now, what's fa what I found fascinating is the fact that here, they're writing their sins on the horns of their altars and on the tablets of their heart, but in chapter 31, 33, God is one day going to, going to write on their hearts, but he's going to write, take out a stony heart and put a heart of flesh. So it's interesting that in this chapter 17, 
Israel, or excuse me, Judah is writing her own sins on her own ketubah, written down, or it could be a wordplay and marriage contract. One day God is going to take and write on their hearts, but it's going to take out a, a stony heart, but write it on hearts of flesh. So we see that in chapter 31, verse 33. This time it'll be the Lord who's doing the writing. Now, verse 2, as they remember their children, so they remember their altars in the Asherim. That's really a sad thing. It's saying just like they remember their children, they're remembering all their idols. It's really a sad situation. And it says also here, so they remember their altars and their Asherim. You might be thinking, what's an Asherim? I'm glad you asked. From the Biblical Archaeology Society, Asherah pole is a sacred tree or a pole that stood near the Canaanite religious locations to honor the Ugaritic mother goddess Asherah, consort of El, the father of the gods, and Baal, the storm god. The Hebrew word Asher, you know, Asherah, Asher, means happy. So it literally means, are you ready for this? Happy place. I'm going to go to my happy place. Oh, you don't want to go there. <laughs> happy place. The term Asher appears 40 times in the Hebrew Bible, and it's usually used in conjunction with the the uh, direct uh, with the article hey or the the reference may be to a goddess a class of goddess but the bottom line is it was a fertility goddess it's unfortunate but in that day the thought was that Baal and Asher and all the rest of them that if they engaged in sexual activity that would create the gods do the same thing and that's why it would rain so it was a really uh, uh, that was really a distorted view of of how God was allowing rain to fall, and they was using it for the other gods, saying that maybe if Asherah and Baal get together, then it would produce rain. Of course, it's the Lord who produces the rain, not these false idols. And then we see in verse 3, O mountain of mine, in the, uh, let's back up here in 2, by green trees and high hills, you've got to understand, back then, trees carried a fertility idea. Green trees were where they put a lot of idols and high places called Bama, Bamot, plural, high places, and they would they create, build idols and astral poles because green trees were used as an idol that was another deity. You know, today we'd call them a tree hugger, wouldn't we? <laughs> All right, so he says, oh, now you notice what he says in verse 3, oh, mountain of mine, not oh, mountain of Baal, not oh, mountain of Asherah, he says, O mountain of mine, this is my mountain, not these other idols you claim to be. O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for booty, your high places for sin throughout your borders, and you, even yourself, will let go of your inheritance that I gave you. I will make you serve your enemies a land you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger. So uh, when we look at this, it is interesting that he's not only going to make, he's not only going to send away and have their wealth being given over his booty, he's also going to, he's going to make them serve your enemies. Not in Judah. Not there in Judah. He's going to make them serve their enemies in Neo-Babylonia, in the, in the new Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. It's one thing to serve your enemies if you're here at home. But imagine if you were taken from here and taken to another country and dropped off there and that's your new homeland. Because that's what Assyrians and Babylonians would do. When there's political unrest, they'd take the people in one nation, go over to another country, totally unrelated, drop those citizens there, take those citizens and, and make a swap. And now it quelch any kind of political uh, uh, trouble because if you're in a strange land, 
there's, there's no reason to be political about it because it's a strange land. You, you, it stops all the rebellion. And that's what he's saying. I'm going to take your booty and you're going to serve your, your enemies in Babylon. You looked your hand out here. You notice the end of the divided monarchy, uh, and there's a red arrow down at the bottom, southern kingdom, exiled to Babylon. In 586 BCE, King Nebuchadnezzar took the last of the divided monarchy, Judah, and exiled them to Babylon. From that point on, that's the end of the divided monarchy, and Israel became a vassal of Babylon. And what he would do is he'd take those people, he'd take Israel and take them to, the ba- to Neo-Babylonia. You might read one of the Psalms that said, uh, said, oh, we used to, we hung up our, our harps on the willow tree, and our captains say, sing us one of those songs of Zion, mockingly. How can we sing a song in a strange land? The psalmist was saying, hey, we're, we're in a strange land. We can't sing any songs here. We're, we're, we're discouraged. All right, let's look down at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in a desert. He will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in a stony waste in a wilderness, in a land of salt without habitations. Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted in a water that extends its roots by a stream. He will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield its fruit. So let's do a comparison, a side-by-side comparison. When I put my hand out this way, it's cursed it is. When I put my hand out this way, it is blessed. All right, so let's look at this. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Cursed is the man who relies upon his own strength. Blessed is the man whose confidence is in the Lord. Cursed is the man whose heart turns away from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose heart remains steadfast. Cursed is the man who will be compared to a tamarisk tree. Blessed is the man who will be compared to any luxuriant tree. Cursed is the man he's like a tree planted in the desert wastelands. But blessed is the man he's planted by a reliable water source. Cursed is the man who endures in a harsh environment, a parched place in the desert, amid salt flats, a land not inhabited. Blessed is the man whose roots, he's like a tree whose roots spread out by the river, enjoying a pleasant environment and will not fear or be anxious from drought or heat. Uh, boy, desert heat sounds like today, doesn't it? Desert heat uh, or drought comes. Cursed is the man, he will not see any good benefits like rainstorms when God's goodness is poured out. But blessed is the man whose foliage shall be luxuriant, neither shall it cease to yield its fruits. So let's look at some finer detail now about the cursed man, verse 5. Verse 5, this says, The Lord curses a man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now, it's a, in your version, you might have bush. Uh, he's like a bush in, in the wilderness. Does any of you have a different translation other than bush? What? Shrub? Anyone have a specific tree? Some of them are like an evergreen tree. I've seen some of those versions say evergreen. So bush or shrub. The word here is aror. Aror is the word here, and it's literally a tamarisk tree. Now, if I, were, I, I thought about bringing my laptop and showing a picture on overhead, but uh, we'll just listen up and see what about this. Tamarisk. Tamarisk tree, the species of the genus is tamarisk, are very common trees and shrubs in the Middle East Listen to this, especially in soils with high salt concentration and are therefore the only trees found on the shores of the Dead Sea. Imagine that. 
This information, by the way, is from Old Dominion University who did some, uh, some extensive research on tamarisk trees. Now, uh, the most commonly planted species, and one that grows in a good-sized tree, is tamarisk aphylla, which is the genus species. The tamarisk has small scale-like leaves and small branches which give the tree a pine-like appearance. Thus, some of your versions might have some kind of an evergreen tree. Now, listen to this. During the heat of the day, the tamarisk secretes salt, a process very wasteful of water. The salt dries. During the night, the salt absorbs water from the air. In the morning, the water evaporates, creating a sort of natural air conditioning. Hey, I want one of those trees. This cooling effect is another reason why it's popularity for a shade tree in the Middle East. I find that interesting. Attractive flower and pink and white flowers are produced during the winter, although a tree may flower at any time. Now, uh, the, notice that the location is, if you look at verse 5, it says it's in the wilderness. Uh, let's see here. It'll be like a bush in the desert, in the wilderness. That word is actually Arabah. The Arabah is a desert area just south of the Dead Sea. Now, uh, compare this, the Tamarisk tree, Aror, with this other tree, which is blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. This tree is... You, you ready for, it's not a specific tree. It's simply the word eights, any tree. It doesn't matter what tree it is. Because what? It's planted by streams of water. So it doesn't make a difference what tree, it's planted by the water. So if we're going to look at the, we've compared now these two trees, let's compare the men involved in this. The first one is, the cursed is the man. So the first one is the condition of this cursed man. Verse 5, this is the Lord curses the man of trust in mankind. Now you notice the, the curses the man who trusts in the Lord and blesses the man who trusts in the Lord. What does that sound like? Is there any, any place in the Torah where it talks about curses and blessings together? Deuteronomy 27, 28. Mount Abel and Mount Gerizim. Mount Abel, the curses the priests were to speak on top of the Mount Abel. And right below was, was Shlim, uh, Skim, uh, Shechem. And, and in Mount Gerizim, you had the blessings. And the people heard both of them, the curses and the blessings. So notice the bookends. Cursed is the man, and then blessed is the man. So like a book ends here. Now, remember we said the word is aror for the, the tree, the Tamas tree? The word cursed is aror. It's a word play. Aror. Not aror, aror. It has a semantic range of meaning to bind with a spell, to hem in with obstacles, to render powerless, to render one unable to resist. Now, so it has the idea of divine with a spell. Now, what they found in Egypt was called execration texts. It's a clay figurine they, they make from fresh clay. They'd mark all the curses to Pharaoh or their enemies. They'd fire it up, and then they'd take it outside. And in order to make the curse stick on the people or the person they're cursing, they'd smash it. So shards go flying everywhere, which meant the curse now can, is irreversible. This is not this word. It's the same word, but it's not this application. When we look at the definitions of a word, not always that definition will fit. There's context. The context here is to hem in with obstacles, to render powerless. So every time you hear about the Lord is going to curse someone, it's not like he's putting a hex on them. Because after all, he is the Lord. He doesn't need to have anyone else to put a spell. Instead, he says, I'm going to put you hemmed in with obstacles to render you powerless. And just like the tamarisk tree, which is not to see any good benefit when goodness comes, so is cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Now, so we, we see this, this wordplay here, aror, the curse sounds similar to aror, and arava. So literally, 
Aror Abba Arava, which is a cursed man living in the Arava. So we've looked at what it means cursed. Now, cursed is a man who trusts. What's the word trust? The word trust is the Hebrew word patak. It means to entrust, to be confident, to be sure, to be bold, secure, safe. This word does not mean now when we say trust, in our society, it almost sounds like, well, yeah, I trust in the Lord, as an idea of saying I believe in the Lord. It's not an intellectual, it's not so much an intellectual belief in God. That's not what talk means. It has a deeper meaning than that. It actually means, it actually means to have safe, to be safe, secure, to entrust oneself, to be confident to be sure and bold, to be sure and safe. So we see that it expresses confidence and a feeling of security and safety when someone can rely on someone or something else. So when we say we have trust in somebody, we're saying we're at peace. We have confidence. We entrust ourselves to that person. Our feeling of safety is there. Cursed is the man trust in mankind. So the object of man's trust is important. You know, to say just to have trust or just believe is meaningless, isn't it? If I say just trust, just believe, what's that mean? It has to have a direct object. In this case, cursed is a man who trusts in others or and or himself, which is just as bad. Cursed is a man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. In mankind, Adam is, is any other men other than any, any kind of man. And the big thing in, in Jeremiah's day was alliances if you trust another nation to deliver you. The second thing is in the arm of the flesh, basam basar zaro. The word zaro, the zaroa is the word, that last word, it means arm. What do you have on the Seder plate? The lamb shank bone, the zaroa. This is this word. In fact, whenever you see an arm of the Lord, and in most cases, it's zaroa, the arm. So he's using that as natural abilities, natural power, natural wisdom. The emphasis on the natural mankind, not supranational, uh, uh, supernatural. So the man who's cursed, uh, who trusted mankind, is relying upon the natural, not the supernatural. The result is a man turns away from the Lord, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The implication is, if you trust in a natural, you're releasing your trust in the supernatural. You embrace mankind's abilities and power. And by default, let go of God's power and his abilities. You're letting go of the supernatural. So it's an either or. And if you think you can do both, verse 9 is for you. <laughs> so we cannot effectively trust our lives and mankind at the same time and trust ourselves to the Lord. If, uh, it kind of reminds me, do you, remember of, uh, do you remember when Elisha said to the people of Baal and Mount, uh, uh, Mount Carmel, Har Carmel, when he said, how long are we going to live in between two opinions? You can just see this now. He's they're limping between two opinions. Either serve Baal, worship him, or serve Yodhevave. She can't do both. If you try, you'll be like straddling a fence. You'll, you'll, you'll end up trusting neither. Ultimately, we trust in one or the other. Now, the second condition is the blessed man. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and his trust is the Lord. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. It will not fear when the heat comes, 
but its leaves will be green. It will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And then it will be not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield its fruit. The song we sung today, this is where this passage comes from. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. This is where we want to be, right? We want to be those who trust in the Lord. The word blessed, Baruch, that was Jeremiah's amanuensis or scribe. The semantic range of meaning is to kneel, to bless, to greet. But I like this definition, to empower someone for success. Because we, use, we tend to use words like holy, blessed, and don't know the definitions. It just ter- turns to be some kind of a general meaningless phrase. So to bless is to empower someone for success. If cursed is to render someone powerless, surely blessed is the opposite, to empower someone for success. And we look at verse 7, this man trusts in the Lord, not in mankind. His trust is the Lord. So if we look carefully at that, we see that blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. The word trust is the word patak again, to entrust, to be confident, to be sure, to be bold, to be safe or secure. It expresses the feeling of security and safety when one can rely on the supranatural upon all nine. Remember, we're living in, a king, in an invisible kingdom. You and I are the only visible elements to this invisible kingdom. You and I have to express to, this, to the Olam Hazed, this present world, the kingdom that's invisible, but it's real. And so you and I need to continue to trust in the Lord. And we've been talking about wholeheartedness. The more we can wholeheartedly love the Lord, the more the outside, the people who's not living in this kingdom who have no choice. Because if you're not in the Lord, you have no choice but to trust in mankind or yourself. That's all the examples you have. So there's two facets. Blessed is the man who trusts, say, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. The first part is he who trusts in Adonai. This is trusting, and this is Asher, this is Asher, Betak, but Adonai. So this is trusting in the ability and the power of the Lord. This is trusting in what the Lord has, his ability and his power. It's trusting in his power, what he can, what he can do, what he can deliver. All right, and then this man has chosen to place his confidence and safety in Adonai's power. This implies the man who places confidence in God's supranatural abilities. He places trust in God's abilities, in God's timing, in God's wisdom, in God's everything. He's trusting in the Lord himself, not just some intellectual, I believe in God. It's specific. And then we'll look at the, the object of man's trust in the Lord. So not only is he trusting in Adonai's ability over here, he's trusting in the Lord. You might say, wasn't that the same thing? No, not necessarily. Sometimes you can trust what God can do for you, but not really trust him. Israel, all through its wondrous wilderness, could believe when God did certain things like producing manna. They could trust in his power at one moment, but then the next moment they didn't trust him at all. There's really two elements, trusting in the Lord's power, and the second half of this verse is trusting the Lord himself. So the object of man's trust here is in the Lord. It says there, and uh, it says in verse seven, and his trust is the Lord. Now, in, in Adonai, he is trusting, and it was fascinating about this, about this word here, this this Hebrew phrase here, Bahaya Adonai Miv Tako. This portion describes a person or object of his faith of the Lord, and it's interesting. Remember, we said Batak is the word for trust. There's a prefixed mimhiric on this word. What does that make that word? It makes it a participle. We're not saying an occasional trust. 
Blessed is not, this is not, this is not what it says. Blessed is a man who trusts, trusts the Lord one time, or those who trust in the Lord occasionally. It's trusting. It's trusting. It's a habitual practice of trusting. So blessed is a man who continually trusts, because you know, all of us can time can trust the Lord one moment and then not trust him in another. It's trusting. So it's a, it's a part of simple. It's continual trusting in Adonai because he's, God has he's discovered the trustworthiness of the Lord and makes him the source of his confidence. So if we, uh, what does this look like in Jeremiah's time? How did Jeremiah see this? What did trusting in mankind look like in Jeremiah's day? Well, trusting in mankind during Jeremiah's day meant political alliances. You know, if you're going to be a man who trusted in mankind, not in the Lord, you have to trust in something else. So in this case, trusting in mankind meant political alliances. So what they'd do is they'd call on other nations to help them out. And we have several passages to read, but I won't turn to that. Number two, trusting in mankind meant turning to idols. Uh, It's fascinating the fact that if you don't trust the Lord and trust him, you will make an idol of something else. And uh, let me read a passage here from 2 Chronicles. Uh, And this is Manasseh most evil king probably uh, Judah ever had. Manasseh, he rebuilt the high places. I'm going to just read some phrases. He erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim poles. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said, my name shall dwell forever. He made his son pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spirituals. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to idols. To, to anger. So if you don't trust in the Lord, you idolize or you put your trust in someone or something else. Now, in our culture, someone say, I, I don't worship idols. I don't worship idols. Anything you love more than the Lord is an idol. And the biggest idol today in this culture is the mind. It's called cognitive idolatry. We worship our mind. If I don't understand it, if I can't see it, then I don't believe it. Well, you've just enthroned your mind as a god, as an idol. And so we need to avoid that. But that's what happened in Jeremiah's day. They thought, well, you know, I'll just trust in my idols. I won't trust in the Lord. I'll just trust in my idols. Trusting in mankind meant leading others astray. In 2 Chronicles 33, 9, it said that Manasseh led his people astray. Number four, trusting in mankind meant relying upon yourself. Now, if you turn back to Jeremiah 9, since we're here in the neighborhood, let's go back here to Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. You read the following. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now it's fascinating, as it says up here in verse 23, let a wise man not boast of his wisdom. He's trusting his own wisdom. That not the mighty man boasts of his might. The mighty man is boasting, he's relying upon his own might. That not a rich man boasts of his riches. So he's boasting in his riches. So we see here that the, trusting in mankind is trusting in your own self. And so many people do that. Call pull, the, the old saying, pulling, pulling up themselves their own bootstraps. That kind of a thing about relying upon your, your own self. And number five, finally, trusting mankind meant trusting in one's own success. We've never done it this way before. That's a recipe for that, isn't it? Well, we've always had success. We'll do it this way. 
But that's not at all what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that you should not trust in one's own successes. Now, what did trusting Adonai look like in Jeremiah's day? How do you mean trust in the Lord in Jeremiah's day? Trusting Adonai meant recognition of human frailty and dependence upon God. All right, so Hezekiah remembered his utter failure, I mean, his utter frailty, and uh, he called upon the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles 32.1, it says here, it says, after these acts of faithlessness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities. And this is what Hezekiah said. Listen to Hezekiah's sound. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde is with him. For the one with us is greater than one with us. With him is only an arm of the flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles. Shalitha, we sang that song, Lord of hosts is with us. He will be with us in every battle. I love that song. It reminds me of Hezekiah right here. It's great. It's great. So trusting Adonai meant recognition of human frailty and dependence upon God. Number two, trusting the Lord meant walking in the ways of the Lord with a tender heart. And we see that both Hezekiah and Josiah practiced that. Hezekiah, he trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded with him. And, he, and the Lord is with him wherever he prospered. And then, Manash, and then excuse me, Josiah, he did right inside the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, did not turn to the left or to the right. So we see that trusting the Lord meant walking in the Lord's ways with a tender heart. Number three, trusting the Lord meant humbling one's heart. We see that, that, that both Josiah and, believe it or not, Manasseh uh, was eventually humbled. In, Jos in Josiah's case, imagine this. The scrolls read, and all these curses are poured out. What's Josiah going to do? He could make an excuse and say, hey, Lord, it wasn't my fault that the scrolls lost. It's not my fault that Israel did Israel. I'm trying to do right. He didn't take an excuse, but instead he said, we have sinned. He personalized it. We have sinned. We are under God's wrath. So he did not make excuses. Instead, he humbled himself. And then we find something interesting uh, about uh, Huldah, the prophetess, who gave a, uh, who gave a prophecy concerning uh, the, the, the lot of Judah. She said this, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with the work of their hands, therefore my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, that's Josiah, who sent you to inquire the Lord, you shall say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, now listen to this, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard of what I spoke against this place, and because you have, because you have torn your clothes and went before me, truly I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and will not see the evil which I bring on this place. So Josiah had a humble heart, and God accepted that, and, it, and disaster did not come in his day. Now imagine what happened if Josiah was an evil king. Who knows? The Lord may have acted even quicker than he did. <clears throat> now, fascinating is Manasseh. Manasseh was the most wicked king that Jude ever had, and he did all those evil. I read earlier about all the evil he did. It's interesting that he actually had a time of repentance. In 2 Chronicles 33, 10-13, this is what it reads. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the armies of the king of Assyria against them. 
They captured Manasseh, King Manasseh, with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to battle. They put hooks in his nose and his lips, because you know, if you're being pulled, you're going to go wherever they tell you, right? Unless you want a torn nose or torn lip. When Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the Lord as God and humbled himself greatly before his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. Now you might think, and then Manasseh came and cleared the temple and did all these reforms after he had done all the evil. You might think, oh, surely God will be forgiving. Because of the sin in which Judah had practiced under Manasseh, it was the tipping point. And if you want to put a tipping point on Manasseh, put an arrow there or right in that box, tipping point, it was with Manasseh that God decided that there's a point of no return and Judah was going to be taken to exile just like the, the northern kingdom was. So we see it happening. So uh, uh, trusting in Adonai number four meant wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Uh, and, and we see this in King Josiah. He said he, has, he worshiped the Lord with all his heart. In 2 Kings 23, it said he, he served the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and all his might. What's that sound like? The Shema, doesn't it? With all, wholeheartedness. And number five, trusting in Adonai meant listening to the Lord and seeking his favor, not finding excuses. Now, in case you might be thinking, well, I've got a wholehearted, you know, I'm, I'm wholehearted. You know, if you, someone will approach me and says, you know, I worship the Lord wholeheartedly, okay? I have no way of knowing, right? I have no way of knowing unless I see your behavior. But can we, and this is just a question, this is not an accusatory tone at all, but can we say for certain we're walking with the Lord with a wholehearted heart? Because Jeremiah says something fascinating. He says something that's disturbing to me. Can we say we're walking with a wholehearted devotion to the Lord and yet have a distracted devotion to the Lord. Look at here at verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10. I, the Lord, search, and test the, search the heart and test the mind. I give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So now this is rather interesting. This heart is more deceitful than all else. The word, the word heart there is, is uh, of course, lev. It's your innermost being, innermost being, your, your affections, your desires, your loves, your hates. The Hebrew word deceitful, the heart is more deceitful than all else, is the word akov, like Jacob, akov. Now this particular one, Jacob, Yaakov, is not the same as akov here. It's the same root word, but it's not the same word. It has a semantic range of meaning of meaning fraudulent, crooked, deceitful, or polluted. All these speak of projecting one thing, but doing another. Saying one thing, but having another. Uh, Isaiah said that these are people who offer vain repetition. They offer vain praises of me. Their, 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 their praise of me is just done in, in rote memory. It's not done at all with honesty. So when I looked up Merriam-Webster online about what, what fraudulent or, or deceitful meant, is one who is not honest, who's deceptive, who's misleading. And uh, we don't have to look very far in society to see that, do we? A lot of misleading. A lot of deceptive practices out there. So Jeremiah formed his Judean audience is quite possible to see not only ourselves, but others as well. So here's giving, let's give an example here. Let's, let's get a personal uh, application point here. We can say that I am wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Can we offer a test? What if you lose your job? Where's your trust factor now? Is it in what the Lord can do? Or do you panic, oh no, what am I going to do? What if the economy goes south? 
and your bank accounts and your assets dwindle, who do you put your trust to there? To the Lord or to the arm of flesh or yourself? Ad infinitum, whatever circumstance happens, we can usually tell it's in the furnace of affliction that we can tell where our trust or our confidence, our feeling of security comes from. So the true litmus test will be on whom or what we rely upon when trouble arises. Not only does Jeremiah say here in verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else, he says it's desperately sick, and none of us like to think of that, do we? That's, that's almost offensive to us. We don't want to think our heart is deceptive. You know, people will say this all the time when I talk, if I, if I happen to be talking to an unbeliever, and he says, well, the, no, the Lord knows my heart. Yeah, he does. And the heart is desperately wicked and deceptive. So just because you say your heart, because it's easy to deceive ourselves. And I think that's the worst part, is it not, when we deceive ourselves. It's one thing to deceive others. It's another for us to deceive ourselves. Not only that, in verse 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. We need an outside observer. We're very subjective, aren't we? We will paint ourselves as this wonderful person. That may be true, but we need an outside observer. We need the Lord to examine our hearts because we don't want to deceive ourselves, do we? We're, we're, we're looking at wholehearted devotion, and I'm trying to get us to look at, trying to get away from a distracted uh, a viewpoint or distracted love for the Lord, but have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So uh, it, it, he says here, it's desperately sick. He goes on to say, who can understand it? Who can understand our own heart? You know, the old saying, you know, I, I would never do that. Oh, yeah? Let's put ourselves in the circumstances they had. Let's see. So it's easy for us to fall into that trap, but we need an outside judge, an outside arbitrator. And what I love here is an interesting, uh, this interesting verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways and deeds. So the Lord himself is the only one with the capacity to peer into our hearts and determine genuine wholeheartedness or just distracted love for the Lord. He alone can objectively determine the status of our trust in him or not. So, and then he goes on and says, I, we see here again in verse 10, I search the heart and I test the mind. Some of you might have a little superscript on that letter for, for mind. And, that, uh, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But he says he tests. There's that word bakan. Bakan means to investigate, to examine thoroughly, to prove, to try. And what's fascinating about this word is almost always uses a metaphor to test metals. I test or try. It's the word, brachan uh, uh, means to, to test, to assay. And they would take metals and put an extreme fire to get all the, the, the pollutants out of the metal, to get all the alloy out of that metal. And yet this word, bakan, the Lord often uses this as testing men's hearts put him under the fire of affliction to get all the evil stuff out of our hearts because we want a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So this is a good metaphor because so too the human heart must be tested in a fire of affliction or adversity. So our real inner self, his kavanah or motives are revealed. The word I test the mind is not the word heart or mind. It's actually the word kilayot. Kilayot literally is kidneys. Now here's what's fascinating about kidneys. It's the innermost self. I don't know. Maybe it's just just me. I've asked my wife and, and see if that works. Let's see if it resonates with, with, with me. Whenever I have an intense feelings, my kidneys tingle. They do. And I can relate to that. I, intense feelings, my kidneys will tingle. I have this tingling sensation. It feels good. 
Is, is this just me? Or maybe it's just me. I don't know. Just me? Okay. But I just, I'm just saying. <laughs> kidneys, kiliot, kidneys are interior self. All right? The best example of, of the Lord testing man's hearts is, is in 1 Shmuel 16.7. 1 Samuel 16.7. This is when it's picking out David and, and he's looking at all these brothers. Eliab was the firstborn. But the Lord said to Shmuel or Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord, an outside observer, looks at the heart. And then he says to give to each man according to his ways and his deeds. The word is darachan, his ways, plural, darachan, and also the fruit of his ways, pre. We, we say this, remember uh, Hagathan? Pre, the, the fruit. The fruit is used as a metaphor as a result of man's actions. And perhaps we need to consider Psalm 139, 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in an everlasting way. So David, the psalmist, who's written an earlier time, was saying, test me and try me and see what's in my heart because I want to come out so I can worship you wholeheartedly. And finally, we get to verse 11, and this is a fascinating verse. You might think, what on earth is verse 11 doing in here? It seems like out of order. He's talking about the heart, God searching the heart. And then in verse 11, as a partridge that hatches eggs, which has not been laid, which he has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. In the end, he will be a fool. Doesn't it seem out of place? Like, what on earth is that talking about? Well, let's see. One of the things we need to look at is called brood parasites or parasitic breeder birds. What happens is you have several birds, including the black-headed duck, the African honey guides, the whitas, the brown-headed cowbirds, and the cuckoos. They're called parasitic breeders. And what they do, the, the, the cuckoo, for instance, the brown-headed cowbird will fly in and lay its eggs in another nest while the mother's away. Now, the eggs will crack open and the, the chicks will come out. And what ends up happening is that bird, that mother bird, will, will raise up these others in the middle of the nest and it gets worse. The eggs that hatch from the cuckoo bird will kick out the real mother's eggs and chicks so that she alone is dwelling. And it's, it's pitiful because here's this partridge, this bird, but the bird that's it's hatched was much bigger than it. And it's called nest parasites. And so he's making an example here of what happens when someone does something they think is right, but it's deceptive. They do not know it's wrong. So for instance, in Jeremiah 22, you don't have to read to that. You don't have to turn to that, but I'll read that as we come to the end here. This is what, what uh, Jeremiah says. Woe to him who builds his house with, without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice. He uses neighbor's service without pay, does not give him his wages who says, I will build myself an upper room with spacious upper rooms. Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? Did your father eat and drink and do justice? You have failed to pay your wages to your workers. So what that is, that's the king producing big palaces and all this, but he doesn't pay his workers. And he sits back and say, yeah, aren't I, you know, I, I'm just a great king. Look at all the things I've done. You know, I trust the Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm worshiping him. 
but he just deceived himself by one of his actions. And Jeremiah is saying that we have to be careful that we don't look at our actions and just assume that they are right. We need to have the Lord examine them. So each of us, each of us needs to examine our hearts to make sure because we want to have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So Jeremiah uses the example of uh, paying his workers, uh, but, uh, uh, but the king did not pay his workers, I should say, his wages to, his, to people who deserve to be paid. And so finally, if we look, well, in the, if you look in verse 12 and uh, 13, O glorious, uh, a glorious throne is on high, as from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel. Isn't that Paul Wilbur's first music group? I believe it is. Israel's hope. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from earth will be written down. And I have a little footnote in John 8, 6. Do you remember when the scribes were saying to Yeshua, you know, this woman ought to be, ought to be uh, 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 killed because she's an adulterer, she'd be stoned? Yeshua bent down and wrote in the earth, and people's always trying to decide, what is he writing in the, in the soil? I think, may I suggest, this is the passage he may have been referring to. Let me read it again. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down in the earth. Interesting. Hmm. That's just my take on it, whether it is or not. I find it fascinating that I should bring that to mind. So as we close tonight, uh, today, we need to uh, keep in mind, this is all meant for all of us to just to examine our motives, our kavanah, our intentionalities, examine our heart, because you know we, we can easily deceive ourselves. Our goal is to have a, a wholehearted devotion to the Lord and not a devoted or distracted devotion. You know, with all the cell phones and all things going on for distractions, we need to make sure we have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So with that in mind, let's close in prayer. Father, it's so easy to think that we are wholeheartedly devoted to you. And then your spirit, your Ruach HaKodesh, touches some area of our lives, and we are shocked because we didn't expect to see that there. Or we had a, mo- we had a, 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 we had a bad motive. Or the way in which we said something. Father, we invite you as David, the psalmist, to search our hearts and see if there's anything hurtful in us. We want to be a people wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And I believe, Father, that there are many here who do have a wholehearted devotion to you who are seeking that. And even though we have not arrived, we are striving for that. So, Father, may we continue to strive for wholeheartedness and not have a distracted devotedness towards you. We thank you, Father, that you will examine our hearts and Father, I thank you that it can be said of us, blessed is a man who trusts in you, and who trusts in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. And we will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. He will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield his fruit. We thank you, Father. May you continue to prick our hearts and continue to, to continually Have us examine our hearts so that we may have wholehearted devotion towards you. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, amen. Amen.